the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. There are a number of investigations still swirling around the former president of the United States, Donald Trump classified documents that were seized at his Mar-a-Lago home, the connections being drawn more clearly all the time between the White House and the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, and now state cases in Georgia and New York. We're going to spend the hour inspecting all of it with Scott Anderson of the Brookings Institution. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. So in a little more than a month, it will have been two years since Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, and a little less than that since he left Washington, left the White House, and became a civilian again. But time has not meant distance from controversy. The former president is now facing several investigations and lawsuits since his term as president wound down with supporters of the former president attempting to prevent the peaceful transition of power. Indeed, today we were supposed to have the latest and maybe even the last hearing by the House January 6th committee that is investigating the insurrection on January 6th of 2021. But late yesterday, they decided to postpone that hearing because of Hurricane Ian touching down in Florida. Still, this is just a slight reprieve for a former president who is facing a lot of legal challenges. In August, we all watched as the FBI searched Donald Trump's residence and club at Mar-a-Lago Resort in Florida. They recovered several boxes of material that was marked as classified. and This was all part of a Department of Justice investigation of possible criminal activity. Last week, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the FBI is allowed to use that seized material in its ongoing investigation, despite efforts by Trump and his team to prevent that. And then that same day, The New York Attorney General, Letitia James, filed a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump and his family business for lying to lenders and insurers by fraudulently inflating the value of his properties and other assets. Meanwhile, in Georgia, an Atlanta area district attorney is leading an investigation and inquiry related to conspiracy to commit election fraud following numerous interactions the former president and his team had with Georgia officials after the election. One of these incidents, I think many people still remember, it was a phone call in which Donald Trump asked the Secretary of State there in Georgia to, quote, find 11,780 votes, which was the gap between his tally and those of now President uh, Joe Biden. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, there is still the House Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol that occurred on January 6, 2021. And over the course of the summer, we have watched this committee hold eight public hearings to lay out a detailed narrative of the former president and his allies and their ties to the people who tried to violently disrupt the counting of votes and the transference of power. With all of this swirling, it can be difficult to try to pick a starting point to unpack the legal jeopardy that faces the former president. It's also a little harder, I think, to think about what all this means for us as citizens. But today we're going to start with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals decision that's allowing the FBI to review these documents that they seized 
at Mar-a-Lago as part of their investigation. How did we even get to this point? What arguments are Donald Trump and his team trying to make to frustrate this investigation? And what have we learned so far? What will we learn soon and in the future? Those are all really important questions. And to help us answer them, I'm joined by Scott Anderson, who is a fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and a senior fellow in the National Security Law Program at Columbia Law School. He's also a senior editor and counsel for Lawfare and a regular contributor to the Lawfare podcast. Scott, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I, I, before we get to this, uh, this question of the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago, I actually want to take a couple steps back and talk about the extraordinary nature of all of these legal entanglements that the former president finds himself in and why they are important. I think for some people, there are questions about whether this should matter, any of it should matter, because his presidency is over, at least for now. I mean, he could run again in 2024, and I suppose he could win. But there, there is a sense I get from some folks that uh, this is this is grinding in uh, an axe, you know, pursuing a grudge uh, against a former politician. I wonder if you can put into perspective for us the seriousness of the investigations that are taking place and uh, the accusations that are being made and why they actually matter. Absolutely. Uh, you know, two sets of the investigations, I think, are the easiest to talk about in that regard. Um, those are the ones relating to the 2020 elections. We have a federal investigation that the Justice Department is pursuing, as well as a state uh, investigation that Fulton County in Georgia is pursuing, both addressing different aspects of the post-2020 uh, election efforts to curb the results in former President Trump's favor. I would also put the January 6th committee in that because it's kind of a big continuum of facts between the 2020 election and January 6th, uh, and slightly before and after both of those events. And then you have the Mar-a-Lago prong, which is, I think, a second bundle of controversy that's very serious uh, from a public interest perspective. You also, of course, have the New York investigation. That's also important, but that is related to business practices. That's important for the same reason you would want all businesses to be able to uh, obligate it to act in a lawful and straightforward manner. Um, but it doesn't relate as directly to you know the presidency and public policy as these other two do. The first prong, the elections-related prong, of course, gets to really fundamental questions about how our election works. Mm. Um, the president, when they're in office, has a lot of authority, he and his supporters and supporters around the country, not just in his role as the president, but also the head of a major political party, have lots of tools that they can pull to potentially try and shape certain election results. Usually, presidents don't do that because our Democratic elections are considered sacrosanct. Um, they worry about political backlash. They worry people wouldn't accept it. Uh, and they worry about legal consequences because there are statutes on the books, both state and federal, that outlaw interfering with elections. Um, treading on that is treading on really a fundamental aspect of our democracy. And that is very important. And if you let the president get away with that without at least investigating it, if there is evidence that he did things and, and it appears there is, although we don't know inside these investigations, then the president is frankly in the best position to abuse and manipulate those processes. They're almost the person who needs to be held accountable the most, at least in my view. In terms of the other prong, this prong about classified information that's come out really just in the last two months as this story has really blossomed to reveal that former President Trump held hundreds, uh, you know, around 100, maybe a little bit more documents marked as classified in his Mar-a-Lago state that he took with him when he left the White House, among thousands of other presidential records um, that were supposed to stay at the White House, at least according to the federal government. That really boils down to, again, handling key state secrets. I mean, doing things like former President Trump did has gotten multiple people put in jail, has ended their careers. Uh, and in those cases, we're talking about lifelong civil servants, many of whom in a handful of these cases brought documents home because they wanted to work from them from home, which is what President Trump said he wanted to do. But in those cases, we're talking about one or two documents, not a hundred of them mm -hmm. or more, including some so sensitive that prosecutors are not yet cleared to understand what's in them so that they can begin to build a case or investigate exactly what's happening here. So all that points to just a really, really huge breach of national security, what, which is supposed to be the president's, uh, including former president's, 
first priority. Um, and it really gets at a core federal interest there, which is protecting our secrets and protecting the people who help keep our country safe. Um, so in that regard, both of those investigations, I think, have a real, real public interest in seeing that any wrongdoing is fully investigated, brought to light, and you know held accountable. Yeah. Um, and I think as more facts come forward, more people are going to understand how serious those investigations are. And the historical precedent for this, uh, you know, I mean, uh, certainly no one alive today can remember uh, activity like this surrounding a former president of the United States. But but is there any historical parallel? Is there anything we can look to that is even remotely like this kind of inquiry? You know, there are certain little instances that might provide parallels to some aspect of it. Um, of course, you know, U.S. federal elections, particularly in the 19th century, actually, were, were highly contentious. There mm-hmm. was a lot of uh, kind of uh, negotiating going on in the background, people using their institutional authority to turn the results one way or the other. That is actually what led to the enactment of the Electoral Count Act, uh, a law that kind of governs how electoral votes uh, are counted um, that lead to determining who the presidency is. That is a bill that is now being considered uh, that might be reformed because certain ambiguities in it um, were seized by certain supporters of former President Trump as ways they think they could manipulate the results. So it's become a controversial bill now, but it was, I think, generally seen as an improvement of what was before it, which was an era where you saw a lot more of these sorts of manipulations. But I'm not sure we've seen anything of the scale even then, and certainly not uh, in the modern era, where there's been much more of an expectation, frankly, much more public scrutiny about what a president is doing once the election takes place that no relevant current president has really tried to do anything like this, certainly not of this ambitious campaign in terms of engaging different supporters around the country, seeking different action at state levels in different states. Um, this is, again, assuming the investigation, as it's kind of laid out in the media, bears fruit and, and proves to be accurate, but all signs point in that direction so far. As opposed to the classified information, of course, there have been incidents of certain officials, uh, you know, either holding information, taking it out of them. We have officials from the Clinton White House who left office with some classified documents, were prosecuted as former national security advisor. There have been a handful of other cases where federal officials, including White House officials, have breached security confidences. Um, Former President Trump himself, while in office, had a very high profile controversy where he is believed to have revealed information to senior Russian officials who were visiting the White House in 2018, 2017. Uh, And uh, at that time triggered a big debate about, well, is that actually classified if he chose to disclose it as the incumbent president? Um, But in terms of a former president taking this level of records with him and Mm -hmm. appearing to try and hide it from federal investigators after they were asking after it. I I can't can't think of any clear parallel. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about uh, this 11th Circuit Court of Appeals decision uh, last week and and what it means. It was a little bit of a surprise, I think, for some folks. I mean, the 11th Circuit, historically at least, pretty conservative. Uh, I I think there were two Trump appointees uh, on the panel that that heard this uh, that heard this appeal. Uh, talk about what they said and and where the case goes from here. Yeah, the opinion is a really notable one. Uh, you have to kind of read legalese to fully understand it. You know, legal opinions tend to be written, um, particularly appellate opinions that are reversing, which is basically what happened here. Mm-hmm. A, a lower courts uh, sort of opinion tend to be fairly polite. They're worded a little more technically, um, but this was a pretty handy handy and, and kind of dismissive opinion in terms of what Judge Eileen Cannon had done in laying out her case for imposing a special master requirement on specifically these 100 or so documents with classification markings. The Justice Department focused its appeal on those issues. Technically, it's not an appeal. Technically, they're seeking to stay Judge Cannon's, but it functions kind of like an appeal in this case. Um, They focused on those 100 core documents because presumably they're the ones they thought they had the strongest case for, and they're the ones most important to the different federal interests involved here, both in terms of confirming no national security is compromised by these documents being held at Mar-a-Lago and pursuing whatever criminal investigation might arise out of it. Um, And the 11th Circuit really struck it down in pretty clear terms. They basically said, look, you're relying upon this one Fifth Circuit opinion. This is a Ritchie opinion um, that is the cub of Judge Cannon's assertion that she has jurisdiction to even do this sort of things. And they said it's reserved for pretty extraordinary situations, the first prong of which is there's evidence of clear, you know, violation of or at least potential violation of somebody's constitutional rights. And you, Judge Cannon, say in your own opinion, there's no evidence that the government actually did that in this case. 
So what basis do you have for asserting it? Notably, that argument would apply to the whole special master process, not just the 100 documents, although in this case, they're just talking about the 100 documents because that's all DOJ appealed. And then it went forward saying that alone would be enough to reverse or to stay the district court's, uh, you know, uh, motion in this case, but we're going to go through the other prongs and show why none of those are supported as well. Um, it left very few doubts as to the fact that the 11th Circuit, at least this panel of the 11th Circuit, which again, it's a fairly Trump-friendly panel, did not take Judge Cannon's arguments very seriously uh, and thought that her conclusions were misplaced. And you know, pretty much reversed that. And it seems the strongly suggested that that view extends again to the whole special master process as well. Although Justice Department may see reasons why they're compromising and not pushing the envelope and trying to end the whole process uh, as a whole. Um, they are currently pursuing a, an appeal. Uh, that appeal will go on a time frame, however, that a lot of the special master process appears like it'll likely wrap up before that appeal gets fully briefed, argued, and decided. Mm -hmm. So it may be mooted before you ever get there. Um, but in the interim, this is a big win for the Justice Department. And we, and to my knowledge, we haven't, oh, I haven't checked in the last 24 hours. So I, we haven't seen signs that the Trump's team is intending to appeal this to the Supreme Court, yeah. uh, which would be the next step. There's no on banc reconsideration for this type of matter in the 11th Circuit. Yeah. Um, and so this appears to be at the end of the road for at least these 100 classified documents. Now the rest of the documents continue to go through the special master process. And what do we believe is the, is the, Worst case scenario, I suppose, uh, for the for the president here. I mean, these are, as you point out, really sensitive documents. Is the is the DOJ looking at this as you know a, a case of espionage or, or or something on that level? So the Justice Department identified three criminal charges or provisions of criminal law, I should say, in its application for a search warrant that led to this whole controversy. This is the original document that kind of started the search of Mar-a-Lago. And the three uh, criminal provisions they noted were one that basically was unlawful possession or manipulation of federal records. That's not limited to classified information. That actually applies to all the documents. A second tranche that relates to, or pardon me, a second provision that relates to obstruction of justice uh, in relation to written records. Um, it's not clear that that's actually about the underlying documents President Trump retained. Uh, I think that actually very well might be about uh, documents that Trump and his legal team provided to the Justice Department in their months of negotiations, which appeared to have falsely asserted that they were not in possession of any more classified documents. Um, and then the third tranche is the one that's been talked about the most, this Espionage Act provision. Mm. Um, but the Espionage Act actually predates our federal classification system. So it does not hinge on whether a document is considered classified or not. Now, in practice, the Justice Department usually says, okay, we focus on classified documents because now that's, that's what we do with our most sensitive national secrets. Um, but I am of the view that in an extraordinary case like this, even if former President Trump were to somehow make a case that he had declassified these documents while in office, and we can get into that. I think there are very good reasons why no such case is easy for him to make. I don't think that rules out the possibility of the Justice Department continuing to pursue an Espionage Act prosecution because the Espionage Act simply says, you, they handled the mishandling of government secrets that could damage national security if revealed. So that could be true, even if former President Trump declassified this. Right. And he doesn't really have an argument, even if they're declassified, that he had any rights to these records. Again, the Presidential Records Act is pretty clear. All of these records are supposed to be staying with the White House and eventually with the National Archives become part of the federal record system. Um, so, you know, I think he's in pretty serious criminal exposure in this particular case not least because a lot of these records were found in his personal desk in his mm -hmm. personal office mixed in with his personal effects including his passport and other things that have become kind of controversial for the fbi having seized but the fbi said we seized these things because the fact that these records were intermingled with his most personal effects shows he was personally involved in mishandling them and that's the sort of personal involvement and exposure that Former President Trump has often avoided in a lot of the other controversies surrounding him. It's hard to penetrate his inner circle to show he had personal involvement. And here you have pretty compelling evidence of it. Um, so I think the worst case is, is the direction we appear to be headed in, which is that there's real evidence the president himself was personally involved in lying to the FBI and mishandling classified information and other government secrets in other federal records. And all those things have criminal penalties associated with them. Yeah.
Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Scott Anderson of the Brookings Institution. I want to hear from you on the phones and on social as well. What do you make of the former president and the legal cases, the legal inquiries that are swirling around him? What do you think of the documents that were seized at Mar-a-Lago and the decision by an appeals court, a federal appeals court, that says the FBI can go ahead and look through uh, those classified documents to see what was going on? Uh, what do you think of the totality of the circumstances that Donald Trump faces as a former president of the United States in such legal jeopardy on so many different fronts. Is that good for the country? Does that make you worry a little about uh, our nation? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Scott Anderson, Visiting Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We're talking about the many legal challenges that still face Donald Trump nearly two years after he lost the 2020 election, uh, cases at the federal level uh, that are being investigated, some at the state level. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of the legal jeopardy that the president, uh, the former president, finds himself in? Uh, what do you think of the documents that were seized, for instance, at his Mar-a-Lago home? What do you think they tell us about what he was up to? Was this a significant breach of National security, perhaps? Uh, was this even more than that? Uh, give us a sense of what you think of these particular instances that uh, Donald Trump finds himself facing legal inquiries. But also, give us a sense of what you think of the idea of a former president of the United States facing these kinds of troubles and what that says about our politics, what that says about our our adherence to governance, uh, what it says about our culture right now. Uh, are you comfortable with the extent to which uh, this is still going on, uh, or are you disturbed by all of it? As always, we want to hear from you on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we can work you into the conversation uh, uh, that way. Uh, there's a Twitter comment that I want to put to you first, Scott. Uh, RZS says, what are some key differences between Trump and Hillary Clinton and her emails that were sent on her personal uh, computer? Uh, that's a question that uh, lots of people ask lots of times. People do remember um, uh, the the inquiries into, into Hillary Clinton that went right up to uh, the, the the edge of the 2016 election. Draw some distinctions for us, if if they exist, uh, between that kind of thing and what uh, Donald Trump is facing. Yeah. So with former Secretary Clinton, uh, you know, the kind of basic allegations against her were that she used private email to do official business uh, with while she was the Secretary of State, uh, and that some of that official business, current conversations uh, that she had via email on the unclassified system at, at the State Department, there are different parallel uh, si systems there, um, involves aspects of classified information that shouldn't have been shared on that system. Um, it is a minority of the emails, like a big part of the concern is that, well, you shouldn't be doing official business on your private email, although she is not the first official to do that by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but then, you know, a, a number of those emails, not necessarily a significant portion of them, but, but some of them are alleged to have some of those classified information kind of contained within it. Um, 
none of this this kind of was discussed about whether she has committed some of these same violations and particularly this mishandling federal records violation that I mentioned before in regard to Mar-a-Lago case. There's the same question as to whether she had violated those um, at the time. Uh, but ultimately, the FBI chose to pers not pursue a criminal investigation um, at that time. Uh, we remember the investigation was closed and it was famously reopened, you know, a few days before the 20 2016 election. Um, uh, and but never actually led anywhere. And it was reopened because of rough certain additional materials that were found on a laptop associated with uh, Anthony Weider, if I'm re recalling correctly, uh, but I may have the details slightly off on that. It's really a matter of scale and intent in that case. You know, it, it's not clear that the intent here was to actually withhold classified information. Mm -hmm. uh, and it appears to be relatively small. In former President Trump's case, we have a case where it's a a large significant number of documents, and these are whole documents, not just sentences or excerpts that might have reference to classified information, as was generally the case, as I recall, in most of the, the Clinton alleged kind of classified emails. Um, whole classified documents being withheld, and Trump and his team at Mar-a-Lago had a month-long conversation with the FBI saying, oh, no, I guess we do have some classified records. Here's a handful of them, giving them back, and we don't have any more. That's really where they put themselves in serious legal jeopardy mm. is is not just having these records, but then refusing to return them when asked for them and then lying about whether they even had them. Mm -hmm. That is obstruction of justice territory. Um, and it really sets you up to have a, uh, a, a sort of evidence of intent that can help facilitate a lot of other criminal prosecutions because it shows that you're doing something that you think is is illegal <laughs> uh, and, and wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. And that that is a big sense of the intent there. there. That was one of the big reasons, I suspect, that we didn't see any sort of criminal investigation or prosecution go forward in regards to former Secretary Clinton is that this was never really intended to you know, transfer or withhold this classified information. Very different for former President Trump, both in terms of the scale and that intent factor. And and that's why I think there's a much more serious risk of legal liability on his part than there was for former Secretary Clinton. Hmm. So I, I want to move just a little forward here and talk a little more about uh, the January 6th uh, inquiry that uh, that a uh, House committee is is conducting. And, and I want to talk about a particular name that has come up, not only in the context of that issue, but also in the context of the documents that uh, are, in, are being examined that were seized at the president's, uh, the former president's house. Uh, a guy named Eric Hirschman, um, uh, one of the former White House lawyers, uh, who is reported to have warned the president late last year that he could Face some legal liability if he didn't, uh, if he did not return some of these documents that he took with him when he left office. But he is also really well known for his testimony as part of the January Sixth Committee's investigation into the assault on the Capitol. And um, um, I, that hearing was supposed to take place today to to keep going with that. Um, but th there is this this nexus, I think, um, between. Um, these two issues, and and Eric Hirschman is kind of a convenient way to to, to draw that nexus, I suppose. But th these are not unrelated issues; they are very different in the way that uh, uh, that they are being adjudicated. They're very different in the way that they're being investigated. But they are all uh, raising these questions about what this president was was up to and the scope and and um, ability, I guess, of his of his power, both in the White House and outside of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, there is actually an overlap in the scope of investigation as well, less about the classified documents, but about the, you know, thousands of other presidential records that former President Trump took with him when he left the White House. And that's been actually kind of a, something that's been mentioned in the courts of the January 6th investigation before, the fact that there are a bunch of records that nobody in government appears to have anymore mm. and that former President Trump hasn't been divulging or, for, or forthcoming with uh, over the course of this investigation. Now, it doesn't appear to have slowed, slowed really the January 6th committee down too much. Um, they got a, real, a lot of very compelling testimony, including from people within senior levels of the Trump administration um, that kind of filled in a lot of the gaps of those records. But documentary evidence is really valuable. And again, it's really valuable in particular because it fills in that last gap between people very close to President Trump 
and what President Trump himself actually knew and did at the time. We have some testimony to that effect from a few people, um, but it, that is always the key link in terms of any effort to hold at least him individually accountable. Um, and that's the hardest investigatory gap to fill often, and these documents could be useful for that. Um, so we may see more in uh, the subsequent hearing that's been rescheduled or further hearings. The committee hasn't ruled it out, although I think they believe they, they said they believe this is likely to be the last hearing, at least for the time being. Um, but that we may see them kind of poke on this a little more in, in ways that will bring these two investigations together. Remember, the Mar-a-Lago investigation really didn't reveal itself in full until after the January 6th committee hearings had ended. Um, and so there may be more intersections here to come forward. We'll, we'll have to wait and see what the committee chooses to do with it. That said, it's, it's also got a limited kind of lifespan. Uh, you know, if the, the widespread assumption is that if Republicans take back the House in the midterm elections, they will shut down the committee in early January next year when they take power. Uh, and so the committee may instead focus on, instead of opening up new lines of investigation, kind of packaging and preserving and communicating the investigation that's already completed because um, it only has a few months left to do that potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, the January 6th commission and the trajectory, I guess, that the investigation has seemed to be on. And that is uh, to toward drawing direct connections between the White House on that day and the protesters or the rioters uh, who were attacking uh, the Capitol. How close are we to establishing those connections? And what might they mean? Uh, what kind of jeopardy could that be for, uh, for the people who were working in the White House at the time, including uh, Donald Trump, who, of course, was very well aware of what was going on just up the street? So we're very close, but we're, I'm not sure we're quite there. We're certainly not quite there yet with former President Trump um, or really with people in his closest circle of advisors. There seem to have been clearly been channels of awareness and communication with uh, the people preparing to assault the Capitol in the morning of January 6th. We knew former President Trump in, in probably what is some of the most damning testimony that's come forward wanted to go to the Capitol building to lead remarks there to, uh, you know, clearly had a sense that he wanted to let armed people in to hear his remarks. He wanted people to take away metal detectors. He said, of course, there aren't, but they're not here to hurt me. Um, things along those lines that are circumstantially very compelling about suggesting this person was okay with what was about to happen. I had some reason to know, if not actual knowledge, what was about to happen. Um, but, you know, in an investigation as highly sensitive as this, um, certainly if you were to pursue any sort of criminal charges um, and uh, or any other sort of like fixed accountability mechanism like impeachment, although I think that ship has sailed at this point, um, you would you know, maybe want closer ties to certain elements of that. You would want to be able to say, no, it's not just a circumstantial evidence. We have direct evidence of a communication, of mm -hmm. conversation, of a phone call. And we're not quite there yet. There's talk of phone calls. It looks like people wearing at least brief communication. There, you know, there's one phone call from the White House in at least one into people who are actually in the Capitol building uh, during the insurrection. Um, there's lots of communications around with some of the team planning it early on. But there's we haven't locked anything down and we haven't seen anyone at least to our knowledge, really come forward, who's already being prosecuted to help tie those links. We actually saw in Stuart Rhodes' uh, trial and in some of the early prosecutorial documents with statements from Rhodes implying that there really wasn't that sort of direct connection. Instead, it was a lot of uh, kind of allusions and suggestions and, you know, kind of reading the room on both sides where they, where they were acting independently, but kind of knew, um, expected the other to support their actions in terms of between the White House and these outside groups um, preparing to push for a certain electoral result. And that might not be enough to cross the threshold. That said, like a lot of the January 6th committee hearings isn't really about building a criminal case. That's not their job. They're not best situated to do that. Sure. A lot of the evidence they're bringing forward might have issues coming forward in a criminal trial too. Some of it's hearsay. Some of it would just have evidentiary questions. A lot of it is about instead building a public record and trying to make people aware of that public record, really building the public case to people. And I think particularly, frankly, voters who might otherwise be willing to vote for Donald Trump, not as core supporters, but people who might be willing to vote for him, whether they're, you know, usual Republican voters or swing voters who might find aspects of the platform appealing and make the case that, hey, like, this is really dangerous. Even people who are established Republicans and believe a lot of the same things you believe, because that's most of the witnesses were established Republicans of various stripes. Yep. 
they actually think this is really dangerous and you should too. And that's why this person, you know, needs to be held accountable for these actions. And and that's much doesn't require that level of, you know, technical finesse. But if you got that damning information, you've had those phone calls, it just makes it that much more compelling and hard to deny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another uh, quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue talking with Scott Anderson uh, of the Brookings Institution about all the investigations into former President Donald Trump. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Coming up next, we're going to talk more about the state cases in New York and Georgia investigating the former president. Uh, And uh, again, we will get to your calls and social media comments. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Scott Anderson, uh, who is a visiting fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. We're talking about the many legal fronts uh, on which uh, former President Donald Trump finds himself perhaps in some jeopardy. Uh, What all of that means, not just for him and potential consequence, uh, but also, what does it mean that uh, we have a former president who is the subject of such widespread legal inquiry, both at the state and the federal level? Uh, what does that mean about our politics, our governance, our culture? As always, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. Let us know what you make of all of this. Uh, uh, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, let's start today with Dan in Southfield. Dan in Southfield, welcome to the hey, show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks again. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, this is the deal. White supremacy is Donald Trump's product. Okay, He's selling it. Okay, And you can gauge his popularity by how many people are buying it. Hmm. Okay? So the fact that people defend this crap could you imagine Craddock politician pulled this crap and, and, and they would never get away with it. But the reason he's getting away with it is because he's selling his product and people want to buy it. And they're desperate to stop what they see as a threat to their existence. Hmm. And until, and until we come to grips with that and face it, and we need to just, confront him face-to-face instead of dancing around with these little arguments about legalisms. Mm. Well, <laughs> Dan, I, I really appreciate the call and and the perspective, and I I absolutely agree with you that, that you know, white supremacy is one of the really powerful dynamics uh, that, that drive enthusiasm for the former president, and he is very adept at manipulating that enthusiasm. Uh, I, I don't agree, though, that these legal inquiries are um, insignificant. I mean, I think um, uh, they are actually quite, it's quite significant in, in, in their potential outcomes and their potential consequences. Um, the, the idea that he's getting away with it is, is interesting given the scope and the reach of these uh, investigations. But Scott Anderson, I wonder what you make of that, that idea. Is he, is he getting away with it? And, and, you know, certainly with his supporters uh, who have not uh, maybe dwindled in, in, uh, in, in uh, large numbers, he's, he's certainly not being, um, being held accountable, but is he getting away with something here because uh, these things are taking so long, I guess. You know, it's a good question. I I know a lot of people feel that way, Um, but I'm not sure that's true entirely. Um, 
the first thing I think is worth bearing in mind is that you have a legal track and a political track, right? They And they're supposed to operate somewhat independently. Just mm-hmm. because you are running for office or you've held an office doesn't mean you're allowed to just violate the law willy-nilly. Um, and just because you might violate the law, frankly, doesn't always mean that you're disqualified from office. There are certain circumstances where that can happen. But, uh, you know, generally, you're still allowed to stand for public office in, in, in a lot of different capacities. Um, and that is OK. You know, we're allowed to have those separate tracks, but we're not supposed to let one trump the other or rely just on one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where you get into dangerous territory where you are begging for the law to be made, you know, secondhand to political system. And that's just not the way the law is supposed to operate. It's supposed to be neutral for people. Uh, and regardless of where they on a political spectrum or whoever might be in charge at a given moment, that's almost the whole point of the law. That's mm-hmm. why rule of law is important. Um, in this particular case, though, y- you can't totally divorce them um, because we have a justice system that is, while particularly under Attorney General Garland, who's really emphasized this, operates with substantial independence from the political leadership in the Biden administration, still is part of the Biden administration. That's part of our constitutional order. Like the president is kind of the head prosecutor among many other roles. Um, and the through the attorney general down into line prosecutors at the federal level. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to completely avoid these sorts of optics. Um, and there is genuine concern. I think it's fair to say, well, look, if, if I had a you know, a president of one party investigating a president of another party after they left office, that raises eyebrows to say, well, certainly there's a potential just on that hypothetical for abuse of power. So maybe we want to take extra steps to show there's no abuse of power happening to give benefits of a doubt in ways we wouldn't have to for a more mundane case. In that way is the fact that former President Trump is the former president does give him a little bit more leeway. It means that it's just harder to bring a case against him because the political consequences and the perceptions among a big part of the population is going to be so biased in one direction because of the political dynamics that I think the Justice Department uh, and folks there, as well as, frankly, state prosecutors, are could be a little resistant to bringing charges in a lot of cases um, and actually, you know, err against it, give them a lot of benefits of a doubt. I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing the Justice Department go along with the special master process now, even though it's pretty clear the 11th Circuit seems to think that they could succeed in appealing the entire thing. It doesn't hurt them. It slows their investigation. It's annoying to do that. It's a little burdensome. It's not something they would want to do as a matter of principle. But in this case, it's going to let them show at the end of it, look, we had an independent judge just like former President Trump asked for review all of this evidence and confirm that we didn't do anything wrong, which yeah. I think is the most likely outcome. And that helps them build the case, saying this is a legitimate legal action, setting aside the political dynamics. But sometimes there is that sense that you have to take those extra steps. Judges certainly perceive it that way because there's separation of powers and other major implications uh, coming into a lot of these investigations. So, you know, it's it's true. Former presidents get a little more of a benefit of a doubt, and I'm not sure we would want it to be any other way. But it doesn't go so far as to say the law doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Daniel, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go uh, next to Anthony in Ann Arbor. Anthony, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. Yeah. Um, I, between um, the classified documents and the January 6th, I don't think like it's a very compelling case being made against Trump hmm. in the, the court of public opinion. And Maybe it is in the court of law, which is fine. He broke the law. He's got to be prosecuted. But like your guest said, the laws that he broke wouldn't preclude him from running for president. So, I mean, other than prosecuting the laws, I don't get the point, especially the January 6th. What's the point? Just to show the world what a terrible guy he is? I mean, everyone's mind is already made up on that. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting uh, point of view, Anthony, the idea that this is maybe not selling uh, to the public because it doesn't seem like such a big deal. What do you make of that that theory, Scott? You know, I think it's it's a it's a theory that's going to take some time to see how it bears out. Um, there are some signs in polling uh, about negatives of former President Trump increasing, um, some support beginning to slip in certain quarters. Um, certainly, I think, frankly, you can see among his Republican competitors or other Republican elites, like particularly around the Mar-a-Lago investigation, frankly, um, beginning to loosen their support. We saw, you know, senior members of the Senate, um, such as John Thune, uh, come forward and say, you know, mishandling classified information this way is not good um, and kind of cast a lot of aspersions on the former president's declassification claims without coming outright and saying, 
I think they're, they're they don't make any sense. Um, uh, and frankly, you've seen a lot of other Republican figures begin to step up and suggest that maybe he's not the person um, to lead us forward in terms of the next Republican primary, mm-hmm. right? Like Ron DeSantis, other folks mm-hmm. stepping forward and suggesting they may be better figures, in part because Trump keeps backing into these controversies um, through reckless behavior that very well may prove to be illegal. Um, so I do think that shifts the the kind of dialogue there. And for the January 6th committee in particular, like they're really trying to appeal, frankly, I think to a lot of voters and particularly Republican voters or Republican leaning voters, kind of better angels. Um, again, most of the witnesses there are establishment Republicans. Like they try to bring in people who are will people who support President Trump will find credible and then heard from those people about what former President Trump did hurt them, hurt people around them or hurts institutions they care about that a lot of people who support President Trump should care about as well. Um, We'll have to wait to see if that works. I mean, I think the proof is really going to come out, frankly, in the Republican primary process if former President Trump does run or on the decision of whether he runs or not uh, for the presidency again. and it really will bear out in terms of how we see other Republicans position themselves in regards to him and his record. Sure. Um, it seems like Representative Cheney very well may be running. Um, that means you're going to have at least one person very willing to pick a fight with former President Trump over what he's done uh, in at least the race as far as she's able to hang into it. Um, who knows if other people will be? Um, uh, certainly we've seen a lot of people resign instead of confront who disagree with former President Trump and the Republican Party instead of confronting him. I think that's that's disappointing and, and not how the system's supposed to operate. You need to have those diverse voices having those debates. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to wait and see a little bit, but I'm, I'm not so pessimistic yet that none of this matters. I think it actually may prove decisive. It, it's just not so easy as flipping a switch saying now all of a sudden everybody disagrees with the former president. It's a much more drawn out process on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Anthony, I appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, quickly, before we run out of time on the program, I do want to talk briefly about these cases in New York and Georgia. Uh, I know that uh, your expertise really is federal law, Scott, but but these also uh, raise important questions about things that uh, that that Donald Trump was 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 doing both when he was president and before, um, and and they implicate these bigger questions about democracy, especially this case uh, in Georgia. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the New York investigation, like I said, I think is important as a matter of kind of business principle. The Mm -hmm. idea that just because he's the former president, he can't get away with doing things that other businesses would be illegal for other businesses to do. And so it's important for that reason. Um, But the Georgia investigation, I think, is really important. Um, And frankly, probably the biggest source of legal risk for former President Trump after the Mar-a-Lago investigation or on a level of the Mar-a-Lago investigation. That's because in that case, you both have a prosecutor who in Fulton County does not really have any political incentives to to be worried about fully pursuing this investigation. You know, people in her constituency seem to be supportive of this. Um, she also uh, is, appears to be doing it very well. She seems very competent and is really being careful about how she's going about it and systematic and is kind of playing the public persona of it uh, very carefully and close to the chest, which I think gives her more credibility. And then perhaps most importantly, she has a very important piece of evidence, which is that phone call that former President Trump made to Georgia state officials that we've all heard the recording of where he says, I just need X number more votes. Where can we find those votes? (laughs) That is an incredibly damning piece of evidence that, again, breaches that gap that we've talked about that's so hard to often do with former President Trump, where it clearly shows his personal involvement in these efforts that are very credibly being alleged to be illegal <laughs> under mm-hmm. state law. Um, we know she's systematically going at the investigation. She's building out other witnesses. She's building a case. It's going to go certainly to lots of people in President Trump's orbit. Who knows if we'll go to him personally. Again, that's a very big target. You have to build a very strong case to do something like that, especially as a you know Fulton County prosecutor. Um, but the evidence is pretty damning in that case. Uh, and you seem to have gotten a really, really competent, effective, thoughtful person going about it. So I think that might end up really troublesome. And in the end, the key point to bear in mind as well is that um, unlike a lot of other states, Georgia, uh, the governor doesn't control pardons in Georgia um, Mm. as relatively minority state. It actually goes to the kind of independent body. I don't know what the politics of that body is or the process, how likely a pardon would be. But the president can't pardon federal so a subsequent president couldn't pardon former president trump for georgia convictions um and it's not clear the governor could do so as well as easily there either so ultimately in that way there may pose even greater legal risk because it's the one that's most likely to stick um even if political supporters of former president trump find themselves in high public office in the future yeah and and are there other states 
uh, where there is legal trouble, perhaps brewing or lurking for uh, for President Trump, or is this is this the end of uh, uh, of that that side of things? I think it's impossible to say um, because the former president has business activities in so many different states, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got hotels in Washington, well, did until recently, and in lots of other parts of the country um, that are caught up in different types of controversy. And certainly, look, there's reason to think that what we've all kind of heard about for many years is true, that the president has certain problematic business activities uh, and and tendencies, and those could get him in trouble in a lot of other areas as well. So you may see a lot of New York-style investigations. Um, and you might see other sorts of investigations along the lines of what we see in Fulton County as well. But in that case, again, you have this uniquely public damning piece of evidence that is uniquely compelling and makes that a particularly strong case. So, again, I think it's easier to see in that. I'm less confident we're going to see more uh, Fulton County type investigations than we were will New York style investigations. But in the end, we don't really know either. Former President Trump has activities all around the country and other people might find some things he did to, to cross legal lines in the future as well. Um, certainly, he he's not somebody who appeared to be very careful about staying on the right side of those lines in all cases. Um, and so there may yet be more cases to come. Yeah. Okay. Scott Anderson, it was really great to have you here with us on Detroit today to talk about all of this potential legal trouble for the former president. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk about the latest on Russia's invasion into Ukraine with Wayne State Professor Aaron Reddish. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Have a great day, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Tomorrow.